Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Selah Fellowship podcast for our Sunday services. Please open your Bibles as we dive into our study this morning. Hey, open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 3. Father, we are grateful. Lord, as we pray for Colin and send him out, Lord, we see today yet another man that you sent out, a short-lived ministry, and yet so powerful that Jesus proclaims him as being the greatest among women that was ever born. Whoa. Lord, as we look at John the Baptist's life and this proclaiming of your Savior Son now sent to us, may you help us to get from the message what you would have our hearts to understand about you, your calling and purpose for us each individually, as well as, Lord, your kingdom as the body of Christ moves forward to try or try to minister and to rescue as you, you've given us that heart of reconciliation or that ministry, a world that is separated from you. So may we learn and glean from the lessons today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 3. Well, chapter 2, of course, gave us this um, kind of boyhood story of Jesus. It ain't much, wasn't much, but evidently it's all that God thought we needed to know. And so uh, we saw that Jesus was birthed and nurtured naturally, like any other baby would be. He received teaching in the traditions and the laws of his people, verses 46 and 47. He um, remained subject, which is interesting, right? Submitted to his parents, his earthly parents, throughout his youth. And we get that from verse 51. That's, a, that's truly a video that I'd like to watch. Just young boy going up through teenage years, submissive to his earthly parents, being fully God. Now, we don't know when Jesus came into the fullness of knowledge as he was trained up and taught. You know, mom had to teach him how to hold a spoon, all that stuff, right? We don't know when he came to the fullness of that, which is so interesting. But he was always filled with the Spirit. The Spirit was upon him, the Scripture says, like no other ever. And, of course, because he was sinless, born of a virgin, but fathered by God Almighty. His Father, now our Father, those that are in Christ Jesus, right? And so, somehow, he, he, was, he always had access to that wisdom from above. And, and that's, what, in fact, what it ended with there in, uh, in verse 52, right? That um, let me find, there we go. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, stature is just that he grew up, he matured. So just like everybody else, there was no shortcut to that, right? But he grew in wisdom. That's the same word wisdom that we have available to us in James chapter one, when God says, if you're lacking it, ask me and I will give to you without reproach what you're seeking. Same thing. So just to let you know, we have access, as Jesus came to example to us, what now our life relationship with Abba Daddy, Father, is. We have that same connection, that same availability to the Father's throne, to speaking to his ear, to receiving from him the fullness of heaven's wisdom. And wisdom is the vertical, right? Knowledge is the horizontal, how we practice that. And, and that was Jesus, th- this example that he's given us. Man, It's just awesome. So, you know, Scripture also says that Mary went on to hide these things in her heart. And I just want to point that out. That just meant that Mary was discreet about what the angel had told her, 
what she understood about her son, where she even knew this was all maybe going, and how she was trying to reason that out, you know, kind of, you know, kind of ponder these things as the scripture says in her heart. But we notice too, as we go forward in the scripture, that Joseph is not on the scene anymore. And everybody pretty much agrees by this point, he had died. So, you know, he's, he's just gone on, you know. But now it's, um, it's year 30 of Jesus's life. We're about 18 years past the last time we were given any kind of a time reference, which actually was back somewhere um, verse 42 when Jesus was 12. So we can figure somewhere between 18, 15 years or whatever. But anyway, he's 30 years old now. So is John the Baptist. And it's like, I let you know last week, now we're going to get back into his story, his calling and what he's been used for and learn a little bit about him and seeing how we can so much be used in ways like him. And, and so let's keep that in mind as we pick it up. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetriarch of Ituria, and, and the region of, okay, and Licinius tyrannic of Albany, uh, we'll just say, while Annas and, and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching and baptized and the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, the removal of sins, as, is, as it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Awesome. So interesting, why why does Luke, now we know he's a doctor, right? So we know he's a little bit intense about the detail thing. Why does he give us this historical kind of secular history? Well, because he wants us in every way to understand we are not following a fairy tale here. We are not following a wise tale. We are following a historical fact of Jesus and John the Baptist being born at a specific time in history when this is all provable. All, all the, the, the tablets and the recording of these men's lives and the, the offices that they held and the and, and the placement of government that they had position in is all a fact. So th- this is, Luke, remember, is writing all this so that we would know. Well, his friend would know, as it said in, in chapter one, but so that we'd understand this is not just, and I heard this about Jesus and I saw that about him, but this is a historical fact. And some people in, out in the world really struggle with that idea. You ever had somebody try to tell you like they don't even know if Jesus really existed or whatever, and you're like, no, it's historical fact. It was all written down. This stuff was recorded for us. So I just want you to understand that, that God in every way wants us to realize that it was at such a time, a right time as this, that he sent his son to save the whole world, to remove our sins. Now, you notice also that there's two high priests. So what's up with that? Because as we talk about all the time, whenever we get into temple or even the tabernacle worship, there was only one high priest. That one guy that could go behind that veil that one time of year. And again, they tied a rope around his ankle in case the little bell stopped ching ching and they knew that 
he wasn't right with God, so they'd pull him out. You know, it's like nobody would go back, and now we got two of these guys. Well, Annas was actually the high priest as far as the Jews were concerned, but he made the Romans kind of mad. And so they installed their own guy, it's actually Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, as being kind of the Roman representative high priest, which means he was a puppet of Rome. So the Jews didn't respect him at all. Annas was the one they looked at. But I only point all this out so that you can understand this is a really bad uh, political scene, a really corrupt religious atmosphere. Sounds familiar. And at this time is when God sends his prophet, his prophet of prophets, right? And, and, And I just love that about this. Now, again, he's calling John the Baptist out, and I want, to under, want you to get also in this that it isn't just the calling, right? It's also the timing, the perfect timing of God. 700 years before this is when Isaiah delivered those prophecies. Now, think about that. And we know, even for our lives in Ephesians, it talks about that there were works written down that we should walk in them before the foundations of the world. God knew. He's omniscient. He knows everything, right? And yet Jesus, God, emptied himself of that knowledge to be raised in a world as a child, to come to that wisdom and knowledge, to grow up with God. In every way, Hebrews tells us he experienced the temptations that we do, and yet without sin. See, that's the video I really want to watch. No, and, and, and just noting that temptation is not a sin. The thought coming in is not what is wrong to God. It's what you do with the thought and the action that follows, right? Let let the train keep going, you know? Don't let it park in the station and then start moving, right? So that is what we, we, we understand truly about what God has done here. 700 years, right? Proper timing. So... If you have received a promise from God, a revelation from God, a calling on your life, please understand that there is going to be timing for that as well as the fulfillment of that. Colin, good example, right? With us all these years, serving God faithfully all this time, and now God says, time to go to school, time to get a degree. And let me assure you, his degree is going to further the calling that he has on his life. It's not even theological. And yet, it in every way will be used by God. I know that from what God did with my degree as he redeemed it. You know, and so whatever he is calling you to do, remember, there there is that absolute, but there's also that timing of absolute. And you want to be, just be sensitive to that, right? And don't, don't just put yourself in park like a car and sit there and wait for the fulfillment. Start driving responsibly towards what you believe God has gifted, anointed, called, revealed, however, whatever words you want to use, if you got an inkling of something that God wants to do, look for the opportunity that he then provides. Not just to do it, but to grow in it. This is, like I said, these guys are 30 years old now, Jesus and, and, and John the Baptist. So all this time, God's been preparing them for such a time as this. As he was preparing the world, again, the Greek language being so descriptive and being able to tell the the absolute truths by its definition of what God Almighty did in God the Son Almighty, 
right? But also the roads that have been built by the Roman government who now controls everything so that that story can be taken out into the world. And when we say into the world, we, we're talking about, remember, the known world, which was basically what the Roman government owned and controlled. So one world government, basically at that time, and yet God uses it to spread his truth through this mighty prophet. That he, and I just love that. So when Isaiah prophesies this 700 years before, right, and then now we're reading it and John the Baptist is going to be proclaiming it, this is all something that everybody understood. And what I mean by that is this is one of those natural things or those, you know, you know common understandings that we might go, well, okay, that's a little bit, you know, subliminal message kind of thing in there. No, it's really straightforward. When a king was coming to town, they would send proclaimers out for two purposes. One, to let you guys all know, the king's coming to town. And the other one was, you better get busy and fill the potholes because the road better be smooth when he comes. And we, the, the garbage better be off the roads. And that's literally what John the Baptist is doing. He is proclaiming the king of kings as coming and It's not that you better clean up so you can meet him. It is you better prepare and humble yourself as you meet him. You know, like, like, are you going to be ready when the king of kings comes to town? Now, we've all had, hopefully, that moment in here where we have met the king of kings. And you know, you didn't clean up when you came. You were sensitive with a humble heart to that message being delivered. And you received his invitation and then found yourself clean, like brand new little pink baby flesh, born again, born by the Spirit. And that's what John is coming to do, to prepare the people, basically spiritually speaking, right, that they needed to get ready. And yet, man, this is such a a dark time. Josephus, who's like this um, Jewish historian, he records that, like, serious, gang violence was so bad. Jewish gang violence was so bad at this time that the gangs were actually killing more Jews than the Romans were. And you know how they hated the Romans. And now the Romans, the persecution and stuff, Jewish gangs were in control everywhere. See, and again, why the soldiers then were so um, oppressive and trying to keep order, my gosh, it, it sounds just like Chicago. I'm, no, I'm serious. It, it, I don't know. But this is what's going on. And, and yet during this time of absolute corruption, both politically and religiously, you know, God sends a message. He speaks to a man. Interesting. He doesn't speak to a king or, you know, an emperor or president, right? He doesn't even speak to his high priest. He speaks to one out in the wilderness. Some guy that's just... And out there and being freaky. I mean, the hair, the clothes, the, the, the menu, you know, just a real different guy, right? And yet God, interesting though, John the baptizer was the son of Zacharias, right? Who was a priest. So John was a priest by God's lineage authority. So see, a, a man... Uh, of God, now coming into the fullness of who he's supposed to be for God. Before I knew you, before you were created in the womb, I I knew you. God says in in Jeremiah, right? That plan already laid out. And remember, I think it was Pastor Austin shared how the, the first 
The first revelation of Jesus coming was John leaping in the womb of his mother. He's about six months older, right? Talk about when life begins, conception. John is revealing Jesus from before even he's born. Just from that connection. I just love that, right? But, it, so he, but he comes, and it, not even the Pope is knowing this. It's a guy out in the wilderness, and he preaches a baptism of repentance. Now, this is not the same as our baptism, which is a, a baptism, as Romans talks about, in, in, that it is a baptism unto um, identification. I mean, that's, why did Jesus have to be baptized? He had no sin. He was baptized to example to us, identify with us, that this is a, a calling we have on our lives. This is a, a step of obedience to God. So he was doing it to fulfill Scripture. As God had said it, then it, it, was, it needed to be done, right? It's sort of like um, it, it, baptism is like acknowledging, a baptism of repentance is kind of like acknowledging the need. For it, it's almost like an, an invite, like an altar call, an invitation. People come forward. You're walking forward. You're like, yes, I need to come to Christ. I need to repent of my sins. I need to be born again. And then they get there, and then they actually have that moment of regeneration by the Spirit of God, rebirth. That's kind of what John's baptism was—a kind of a, a preparation for receiving that 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 salvation. Right now. Baptism wasn't, I want to point this out, new to the Jew. See, they were used to this idea. When they would go to temple, there were these baths that were actually around the temple, and they were called mitzvahs, and the Jews would go down in them to bathe like a preparation, like, I'm going to the temple. So they would they just have little stairs, like, like almost like kind of like baptisms in some churches. I think we used to have one here, but where they would walk down and kind of cleanse off, and then they'd go up because... You know, women had their issues every month that there was like a cleansing process and men even have their issues. And But also like if you wanted to become a Jew, like a proselyte, and you were like, well, I really want to join this faith. It didn't by lineage make you one, but you could become one by following. And to do that, you would go down in the mitzvah. You'd take a bath, the ceremonial kind of ritual of cleansing. So the Jews knew about this. This wasn't like a brand new thing. Baptism didn't begin with Christianity. That's what I'm trying to say. Right, so that they 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 knew what this was, and so as John is calling them to do this, they're like, "Yeah, we're right on. We're gonna we're gonna do this." Then he said to the multitudes, John the Baptist, that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers or offspring of snakes. Right? Whoa, talk about seeker friendly. Not right. I don't know what this guy's thinking. Right. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And believe me, as Jesus just went like, there are, you know, stones everywhere, you know, or as, you know, as John is speaking. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit, and it is good fruit, not bad fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. So check this out. Again, not politically correct. This guy is a fiery preacher. He's out there proclaiming the coming of the king of kings, and he's not being sensitive to not wanting to offend. In fact, he literally is offending. 
especially the religious leaders. And, you know, Matthew's gospel that follows this story gives us insights. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, well, 1 through 7. I'm just going to read it down so you get a little bit more insight. In these days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So again, same message. And John himself was clothed in camel hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Honey, this is not a hipster. This is, although he's got a big beard, you know, but this is just like really like anointed man in that God is using him in truth and people are responding, right? The multitudes are coming out. Then Jerusalem, all of Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. So a couple of points here. One is that the ones that he's really going after with this um, critical speech are the religious hypocrites, those religiously dead. He's really trying to get, see the people are coming out and they're, they're looking for the Messiah. They, they're hoping that this is truth, right? But there's a qualifier for coming out. It isn't, it isn't just come out, dip in, get out, you're all good. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Check it out. John is demanding evidence of salvation at hand. No different from us, right? We are to bear fruit. And the, and the word fruit in the Greek, it translates work, acts, results. And I love that, right? True faith demands a response. You really believe it, you will act upon it. And, and so this is going to cause a change in yours and my life. In fact, of course, repentance means change of mind. Again, I like this definition, reversal. One word, reversal. I'm going this way, I reverse, and now I go this way. Why? Well, because I believe what I have just received as being truth from God. And as I step out and I start going forward and I say that I'm saved, I better act like it. And as I act like it, by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit now, who has not just given me power or giftings to use for God, to witness him, but also given me the power and the strength to be able to say no to sin. No temptations overtaking you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, who will provide the way of escape. Love that verse. I'm promised never to be given more than I can handle. Hate that verse. I'm told whatever I'm given, I can handle it by the power of God and not sin. See, and I'm just as guilty as you as being convicted by that and knowing, man, I don't always take it, that way of escape. What he tells me by his word, through his spirit, I'm now empowered to do. And let me tell you, if you do, as we do, take those steps, 
one at a time, by the power of the Spirit, more and more, the testimony then of our life unfolds, the victory gets more absolute, and pretty soon you're down the road and you don't even remember that stuff anymore that used to stumble you in your mind. The enemy can't trigger you by those things that all of a sudden you find up yourself driving in front of or somebody walking up to you insane or those things that you catch out of the corner of your eye and you are so able to shoot that dart down because you've got that helmet of salvation that is absolutely assured and confident in what God has done and the shield of faith that says, no, what he has done is more absolute and powerful in my life than all this garbage out here in the world. See, and that's how we, we have to walk. It's like, yes, Lord, yes, and, and, and just stepping forward. Now, I, also, it, it, you know, although you know, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 22, right? The last one, one of my favorites, self-control. See, there it is right there, right? But it's not just about discipline because let's remember the fruit of the Holy Spirit in this singular, love. So the number one evidence in my life of being born again, Spirit of God, now living in me, is love. I'm growing in love. How I love, who I am loving too, how I step out in that love by his spirit and direction and calling. All those working together, but it's love. It's not some cosmic, dramatic, you know, explosion of, of Holy Spirit power. As, you know, there's, there's one pastor who used to say that all the time, you know, except he'd get up close and go, like, power. And then, you know, we'd see Tanella like jump like that, you know, and it's like, no. It's not about that. It's actually love how we love and how we move as witnesses unto him, Acts 1-8, right? And go out into the world. That is what is the evidence of Christ now in me. Christ-likeness, right? We've all been given gifts and powers. You know, and remember the Corinthians had them and they were jacked up because they were like, they were not using them correctly. That's why Paul had to write them and go, look, Get it together. Are you kidding me? You got all the spiritual power available to you. You are born again, but you're walking carnal. There's nothing more frustrating than a believer who walks carnal. Man, and because not, not only is what they might do to you or you know how it might come against you, but watching them break down the testimony and the witness of who God would have us to be as the world watches is why he's left us here. So watch it, because we, we all want to, man, we all want to be walking in that truth and, and not, don't buy into this garbage about, you know, king's kid, prosperity, comfort, you know, God's giving me so much relief from every hardship in life. It's, I'm, I'm, I got enough faith to just flow through with no problems. It, I don't see that in Scripture. In fact, if anything, I see in Scriptures that the problems are actually what builds faith and Christ-likeness in me because it challenges my flesh and causes me to have to crucify it daily. You know, so that's what I see. I mean, that's, what he, that's why he, he's kind of getting on the Jews right here because so many of them were betting on their heritage through Abraham as being their ticket into eternity with God. You know, that's how some kind of, that's going to gain them favor. And, he, and he's like, are you crazy? You know, there are Christians. Well, no. Yeah, okay. There's people who think they're Christians because they're Americans. 
because they were born in America, of course they're Christians. That's trusting your heritage. And John is saying the axe is ready to cut down that family tree. <laughs> you, got, you got no hope in that getting you to heaven. That is not what it's about. It needs to be that personal fruit-bearing relationship with God Almighty through his Holy Spirit now in you by the grace that comes through the faith that you place in his son's gift, now yours through faith and receiving, right? As many as have received him, John 1.12, to these he gives the right, the privilege to be sons and daughters of God. That's what we need to be about, right? So then, you know, John says this, makes a statement that people are like, in verse 10, what do we do then? What, tell, you, you, what, what are we supposed to do? He answered and said to them, again, really practical stuff, right? This is not a flamboyant uh, ministry proclamation here. He, he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized. And he said to them, teacher, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for, to you, for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, ooh, now we got Gentiles coming. Now everybody, see, is welcome, whosoever. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now, I love this. Just absolute faith that works. Practical stuff, right? Share, be fair, care, be content. That's how I broke it down. It's real simple. These are basic principles, right, that any of us would teach our kids. And yet, as adults, God has to remind us that these are principles we should be walking in if we say we're his children. If, if we are, you know, and, and two, he's pointing out these works of the flesh as sin. Sin. And that's, when he talks about sharing there, you know, if you've got some... And again, he's talking about being able to share. He's not telling you to, take, to plant seeds of faith and to go beyond what your means are, but what he's given to you, be willing to share it, right? Get outside of yourself and meet the needs of somebody else. Blessed, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus speaking, Acts 20, 35. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So many people get so depressed or so burdened or feel so heavy laden and again believers and yet jesus says my yoke is easy my burden is light and they're walking around oh like oh why i challenge is it because you're so self-centered centered on self rather than centered on the concerns of others or being concerned for others with them as your center you know i just got a text from a, a woman boy i think it was just last week maybe a week and a half ago who used to attend Blue Island, so my church back in Chicago, I'm going to say maybe 15 years ago, right? And I had said something that the sin of depression was caused by self-centeredness during a teaching. I said something like that, you know? I don't, it was, I don't know if it was in my notes or not. This was a long time ago. That stuck with her and, I won't say haunted her, all these years. And she just wrote me and said, 
I finally understood what you said, and I wanted you to know how effective your teaching has been all these years later. You know, here she was, like, offended by it because she was one that would go into depression and, you know, kind of emotionally was up and down. Took her all these years, and now she got it, and she's set free from that because she realized, I need to get out of myself and give to others. I need to share what God has given to me. Eternal life, the salvation message, reconciliation. Now, I'm not discounting or making light of anyone who struggles emotionally with depression, especially if it's, if it's a chemical thing in your body and there are those realities of our bodies and how whacked out they are because of, you know, it's everything in this world being whacked out, right? But if this is something that you're struggling with, I want to encourage you Experience the blessing of getting outside yourself to reach out to somebody in need. Come to Browning. When you get to sit and color on a coloring page with a native who, whose only meal of the day you just were able to help provide for, and they're expressing thankfulness. Yesterday, I don't know how many times Jan came up to me and said, oh, it's so cute when they say thank you. You know, you gag them and they say, thank you. And you give them something, they're like, thank you. You know, it's just, it's like, it, it makes you feel like, oh my gosh, I really did something here. I wasn't just functioning, I was actually ministering as I was giving a cool drink of water to a child. And scripture says, it won't be forgotten. I'm going to remember that in my heavenly home. I'm writing it down. Wow. Anyway, I want to just encourage you Step out, man. The tax collectors. Now, that was like kind of a a tax collector was kind of like legalized robbery. Now, don't go. Now, I know, right? I'm not going to make any IRS jokes or anything. I'm just saying they were hated because they were told you have to collect this much money from your region, right? And then they were allowed to kick it up to whatever they thought they could get. And then they got to keep the excess. So imagine taxation in this day and age, right? So the tax collectors were absolutely hated. And that's why John here is going, be fair, man. Whatever you're told to collect, don't collect any more than that. You have a right to make a living, but don't use this place of gain for personal. You know, there, man, there's Christians who, again, even in their own mind, it's like, well, I have to make as much for the kingdom of God. I'm going to tithe on it, so I'm going to charge more. And they, they twist their thinking to take advantage or abuse and don't look at service that is you know, receivable of payment for as an opportunity to minister as much as they're thinking about gain. It's just something to think about. you know, Because how many Christians rationalize that idea of cheating on their taxes so they can tithe more. I don't know. It's just weird to me how people... They, these are basic principles. Soldiers. Now, again, don't intimidate. So they were the ones that absolutely had authority. Bust your head open if they felt like it, authority. And he's going, don't. D- don't be like that. Don't abuse power that you have in a way of of keeping down and and be content with your wages. So now, if, again, soldiers probably being able to, you know, do that thing where hey, we'll protect you. You will, uh, 
we'll watch out for you if you give us a little something something you know your store won't be attacked and you won't be busted down and your little vending cart won't be smashed and you know that idea of coercion to get funds no first timothy 6 6 said god says godliness with contentment is great gain so be content with where you are, not using that authority to try to cut corners or to steal them, right? Because you think you deserve more. No, trust God to provide. And then within that provision, you share, you, you absolutely handle responsibly, and you know that then God's promise of always providing your needs is met. You never have to worry about it, right? But here he is revealing these absolute tendencies of the flesh as being sin. And that's something that we all need to be refreshed and reminded of. Otherwise, God wouldn't be doing it, right? Now, as the people were, ex- as the people were in expectation of and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier, one capital O, one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. People were excited. They were even kind of reasoning, is, is this like the Christ? Is he actually the one? You know, And, and, and figuring because there, there was such a power about wanting to hear him and stuff. And no, in fact, you know, Jesus even said that John being the greatest prophet that ever came, never performed one miracle. Never, right? Now, what John did do, though, is he immediately pointed people to the one mightier. He was always pointing people to Jesus. That's a lesson for me. As people can get wrapped up in what they see me do, what they hear me say, um, what I'm doing as part of a group or whatever, and we can get attention for that, John was always pointing people back to the one mightier. He must increase, and I may must decrease, right? That's what he would say. And, 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 and confesses, right, that he's not even worthy to untie the sandal strap of the one mightier. Now, that, of course, was the lowest of the lowest jobs of the slave. I'm coming into a house untie my sandals, wash my feet. And Jesus exampled that to us, right? As being the servant of all, that one that would wash the feet. So John here makes it clear too that Jesus will come, and he, but he will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now it's interesting because I was just having a conversation with somebody recently that said that baptism is essential to be saved. Not important because Jesus said to be baptized. It's an ordinance, right? We are to be baptized and we are to practice communion. Oh, we're not doing that today. But anyway, we're to practice communion, which is why we have a table. And yet they, you know, this person was saying, it's a, you must be baptized or you're not truly going to heaven. You're not, your sins are not washed away. If it was so important, would not have Jesus come and then baptized as an example to have to fulfill to go to heaven? Just a thought. I'm just thinking here. Because John was exampling it as absolute identification with Christ. But if Christ was coming and going to baptize also, wouldn't he have exampled water baptism along then with the Spirit and the fire? Now, when he talks about the Holy Spirit, of course, obviously he is talking about Acts 1, where he told 
the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until the power of the promise from the Father from on high came upon them. The epi-experience. Not the Spirit in you, not the Spirit around you that draws us, right? The Holy Spirit always with us, always around us. And then at that moment of conversion coming into us, you have the Spirit, you have the Son of God. He who does not have the Spirit does not have the Son of God, Scripture tells us, right? But then also tarry now in Jerusalem until the epi, the Spirit, comes upon you. And that is the baptism by fire for the service of God. Now, that doesn't mean like, man, that guy's really on fire for Jesus because I'm going around being crazy and, and everything. You know, like I have to be a Jesus freak and that's what it means if I'm really baptized in the Spirit. Let's all get up, run around the church a couple times and if any of you can reach the chandeliers, let's swing a little bit. That's not what he's talking about. The baptism of fire is a baptism of purification, refinement. Why? Well, because one of the, one of the tenets of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin. It's to purify, purge my life of those things. As I walk with God, as I go farther with him, he, he reveals that to me. Now, how do I know that? Well, because of the context of the next verse. His winnowing, winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, and with many other exhortations he preached to the people. And so we've got him saying, now, again, maybe historically or, or I guess um, in, in our culture, in our time period, you're going like, what is a winnowing fan, and what, you know, what's he talking about? Well, back in that day, again, wheat being the crop that they would, leave, that they would live from and stuff, and they'd gather up the wheat, and they would thresh it. They'd have to remove the chaff. Chaff is like a skin around the wheat, right? So they would go and they would go usually up on a hilltop where there was a little bit of a breeze blowing and they would they would throw and you've probably seen it on, you know, Discovery Channel or whatever, but they'd be thrown they throw the wheat up into the air and then they kinda of, they catch it in baskets and they kinda of roll it and that's kind of rolling off this skin that we all tend to have on us of who we want to be perceived as and what shields us from getting into the heart of the fruit, the meat, right? So they're they're doing this this uh, winnowing in the sense that they're, they're threshing the, the wheat. And so they throw it up and stuff. Now, as they throw it up, a wind or a breeze blows the chaff away, the, the shell as it starts coming off. And so it's like God's spirit kind of blowing off this, what he's just basically discovered in these last, or talked about in these last few verses, these things of the flesh that we really need to strip away, right? Well, sometimes there's no wind. Sometimes there was no breeze. So what do they do? Well, they have a winnowing fan. And so somebody would be standing there with the fan as they would throw up the grain. And so as, again, the same thing, it would create this breeze and it would, it would blow away the chaff. And, and so this is a picture of what God wants to do with all of us. Blow away that chaff. In fact, burn it. It's worthless. So if you're holding on to things that are that skin around you, that shield of protection of who you are and, and what you're about and what you'll let in and watch for that. Because that's all something that God wants to strip away that the fruit truly of what he's created in you by his spirit can come out and be born. Because John is saying it's essential evidence of your salvation. I know it hurts to love and not be loved back. Paul said it, the more he loved, the less he be loved. Lovers in Christ, not judges, lovers. And that causes that, that the only way that can be done is by this chaff being 
being blown away and dealt with, and we need to be about that. But, it goes on in verse 19, Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. So, in other words, and I, and I just love this, you know, a couple things that I'm just watching. John is out there with the multitude saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. God's coming. Repent of your sins. But to Herod, the king, same message. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Oh, and by the way, you married your brother's wife, who's also your niece, and Leviticus talks about what a perversion that is, and you are in deep sin, buddy. And he's talking to the king. Right now, Herodias, the wife, got really mad about that. You know, hell hath no fury like a scorned woman. And and so she wants vengeance, right? And you know the story from the other Gospels, which give us more detail. So Herodias sends her daughter in. She dances at Herod's party, seduces him into giving her half his kingdom because that was such an enjoyable dance. Anything you want, babe. So she goes to mom and says, what do we want? And mom says, we want John John Baptist's head on a platter. That's what we want. Go tell him. Now, Herod, in his evilness, and we see that he's an evil king, right? He feels constrained because he just made a promise to a young woman at a party with all of his drunk buddies around. And he's a little intimidated, and so he compromises what he knows to be truth because he knew that John was a godly man. He knew that the Spirit of God was using him, and he knew the people loved him, but he felt like he had to do this to save, face his chaff, right? The dangers of where that kind of shielding around your heart can lead to not really receiving the word of God. So John is, is in jail. And there for almost two years, I believe that was how long he was in jail. But I was really impressed that he only has one message, It is repent. The kingdom of God is near. And I believe that is something that we should all take note of. I don't have one message for you, another message for when I stand in front of a class at a school, secular, or another message for when I'm speaking to my family, or, God willing, I should ever be in front of a king. You need to know Jesus in a personal relationship to get to heaven. That's all I know. I, you know, I, I remember saying that to my youth group when I was a youth pastor and I had one guy and he was like, so you're saying I'm going to go to hell? I'm saying you're not going to heaven if you don't have a personal relationship with fruit that is exposing the truth of that. So you're saying I'm going to go to hell. I didn't say that. I said you're not going to heaven. It's, it's, I like to mess with youth minds. And so it's like, you figure it out, buddy. What do you think I'm saying? There's only two destinations, right? Anyway, that's... My creepiness. But anyway, so John here now is, is sharing this message. He's a powerful speaker. He's in prison. And let me tell you, before he goes to prison, he only has six months worth of ministry. Now consider that. God prepared him while he was still in the womb to come forth and be a prophet like no other. And yet he only had six months to fulfill his calling. And then God said, you're done. Come home. Wow. Because we can have such grandeur and such, you know, 
mindsets of how long we should have or how big ministry should be or six months. But it transformed the face of the world for generations to come by what he said, what he fulfilled, Isaiah doing it 700 years before professing that, right? And what it is. Again, this is what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Matthew, Matt 11, 11. There you go. Remember this. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he never did a miracle. Nobody greater ever born among women than John the Baptist. Why? Because he got to proclaim the preparation of the kingdom of God to enter this world. Okay, but now listen to what Jesus says. This is still Matt 11, 11. Matt 1, 1, 1, 1. I don't, just get this in your mind. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the Baptist doing the greatest work, and yet Jesus inviting us who would be least in the kingdom of heaven, right? I just got saved. I just got in. How is it that I'm greater? Because the Spirit of God lives in you, which allows you, by relationship with him, to do works even greater than John the Baptist for six months. Who do you proclaim to? Who does he put in front of you? Where has he placed you as a witness? How is your life being used in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world? Any one of those. Across the street to your neighbor, next state, next country, around the world. I don't know. But you have the opportunity to be greater than John the Baptist, and yet Jesus is saying there's never been one born greater than him. Amazing stuff. That's me. That's you, right? What impact can we have? We have that testimony. And yet, the testimony of John cost him his life. Think about it. When all the people were, ba- when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And why he prayed, the heaven, singular, talking about God's own throne room, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Jesus baptized. Again, why? He had no sin to repent of. He did it for identification with you and I, which is exactly why Romans says we are baptized, an outward expression of what God has done inwardly to expose our now new life to those that will be there as a witness. That's why when we have a baptism, we always ask, that everybody's been baptized, hey, come on out and watch. So there's a witness unto what people are doing. It's a powerful thing. It's a commanded thing by Jesus. It's an act of obedience, right? If you haven't been baptized, you need to be because he said so, that we are to go into all the world baptizing, making disciples and baptizing them, right? So you need to be. We will have a baptism this summer. We always do at Selah. If you haven't been, get baptized. I'm telling you, that's what scripture says. Do you need it to be saved? No. But is it a fruit because you are saved? Absolutely. And John is demanding it. If you are, you will be. If you know what the scripture says. And that's how you know is by getting in the scriptures. And again, don't want to belabor it, but Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, For Christ who suffered once for sins, and the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. That would be, he, he descended into hell, Sheol, which we would call, we would just go hell, but the, there was actually in Hebrew two chambers for it, Abraham's bosom, that waiting place for those that died believing in Messiah, and then there truly is hell waiting for the eternal fire because of people that died rejecting the truth, right? So he went to prison and led captivity captive, it says in, in Ephesians. He took them home to heaven. They're done. For, who, for formerly who were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering awaited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, and which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Okay, so that was a picture of baptism. God opening that door, saving those eight that believed in him were faithful for all those years while they built the ark, and now that was a picture of God taking people through to the other side based on now his revelation, his truth, right? And it goes on to say, uh, we, therefore, there is also an antitype. Now, antitype, in our language, we might think an against type. No, it means a like typeness that is different, right? But it means the same thing, which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of filth from the flesh. It's not about cleaning off your flesh from filth, but the answer, the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the answer to my good conscience now being cleansed. All the way through the book of Acts, baptism follows cleansing, follows repentance, follows now life in Christ. And so that's what that scripture is saying. Not the cleansing of the flesh, not that I have to have it, but the answer is just to example it and relate to Christ, right? But note here, more importantly, and we're going to close with this, the, the more important truth here is that while he's praying, God's throne room opens up, the heavens open, right? And the Trinity is revealed. You got Jesus being baptized. You got the Holy Spirit descending like a dove upon him, resting upon him, Matthew says, right? And then God speaking, God the Father speaking from heaven. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, all in one. One God, three persons. How does that work? I can't figure it out with my finite mind all the way, but I just know it's examples. Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, God, Father, God, all one, but three, three ways of manifesting. Man, unbelievable. The undeniable profession also that you are my son, only begotten son of the Father, Jesus, Right? And that the Father was pleased with him. Because why? He'd walk forward in obedience to the scriptures and was baptized to identify with us. How would we then do anything less but being identified with him? Okay, and we're, we're going to finish this. Now, uh, Luke here gets into the genealogy of Jesus in an interesting way. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, I'm not going to go through all the genealogy. I encourage you to do that. We're just going to jump right to the end of it. But I do point out that as was supposed, Joseph was his father, because, of course, his father was God. But everybody, you know, for the most part, he grew up calling Joseph dad, and people were like, yeah, that's Joseph's son. He's a carpenter. And so it was supposed, but we know truth. 
And scripture has just confirmed it to us that he was the one and only true son of God. Now, if you jump over to verse 37, after going through all this genealogy, right? It says the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Luke takes Jesus's lineage all the way from verse 23 down to verse 38 to being Adam. Why? Because Luke is presenting him as, as relational to me. Matthew presents him as the king for the Jews. The bloodline is all about him being legit as king. For me, the bloodline is legit all the way back to my great, 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 great granddaddy Adam. And so I need to know that Jesus is for me, not just for religious sect of how God brought him to the Jews. And that's why he does this. 30 years old, he starts his ministry. Again, that's because that's when you were considered to be a man. That's when the priests were you know, instilled to be able to, um, to serve in that way. I just wanted to point that out. Now, also, a difference that you'll see with Matthew is that Luke goes through Nathan when he gets into Sons of David, whereas Matthew goes through Rehoboam. And the reason is because of Jeconiah, one of Rehoboam's sons, actually was an evil king. And so he was cursed by Jeremiah you know, with a curse, and it's like, you're out. So Luke takes him through Nathan, who brings him all the way then to son of David, back to Adam, so that we understand through Mary, which is where Nathan comes from, Jesus is the son of David. Prophetically, that David's son would sit upon the throne forever. So God's very specific about how he tells us these details. I would just say in closing, these same details are written down about your life. He's known since the foundation of the world that you'd be sitting here today, that you would know him or that you don't, and that you need to if you haven't yet received him. That's what it comes down to. And all of this is written by a surgeon, by a doctor, with the details that we would know, that we know, that we know in detail how God set this up. Amen? Thank you for joining us as we studied the word this morning. If you would like more information about Selah Fellowship, please visit us on the web at selahfellowship.org. While you are there, feel free to check out some of our other messages and past book studies. Thank you again, and God bless.